Welcome to the OKC First podcast. Together, we're learning to do three things. Friendship with God. Friendship with one another. And open friendship for the sake of the world. For more information about OKC First, please visit OKCFirst.com. Today's scripture comes from John chapter 10, verses 1 through 7. Very truly, I tell you, anyone who does not enter the sheepfold by the gate, but climbs in by another way is a thief and a bandit. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by, by name sorry, and leads them out. When he was brought out all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. They will not follow a stranger, but they will run from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus used this figure of speech with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So, Jesus, so again, Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Stacy, very much. As you can tell, Tamara is out of pocket today traveling, and so I quizzed her like I do, and I know she's going to be gone, and I said, okay, who's taking care of stuff for us today? She goes, oh, the team is. They'll be fine. And uh, she's right. They've been great. Thank you. And thank you, Stacy, for allowing that scripture to kind of get to you. Um, it, it has me, too, because I think for anyone who's paying attention, you'll, you'll notice that the church is having this question right now. Who's allowed in? There is, there seems to be at least a, a job description that has emerged out there, and I will, we'll call this position gatekeeper. Um, gatekeepers these days are not always helpful. I mean, we already have somebody for that job. So we're, we're going to have a, a difficult discussion today. Again, I, I feel like there are a couple of these passages during the season of Easter, and this is another one of them, that, that allows, this is a passage that allows us to have what amounts to a team meeting. We're, I'd like to call it to order another team meeting today. For us to try to have a, a robust discussion on this very important question of inness and outness. And all God's people said. Uh, when I was in college, uh, my parents lived here. They, my dad was the district superintendent, and um, my m mom, and they, they had a house up in the, the sort of the Putnam City North area. And we're not exactly sure how it happened, but it became the place for a whole bunch of us to go watch Monday Night Football. It just did. And I mean, I think it probably started with a few of us, but then it, it got to be where it was a whole bunch of us. And I can remember saying, like, I, I don't know who all these people are, but they all seem to want to come and, and watch the football game. And, and my mom and dad, and I hope as, as you get to know them, they're, they're the ones who typically sit here, but dad's out preaching somewhere else today. Oh, he needs to quit that, but he's out preaching somewhere else. Um, they would say, yeah, it's, it's 
why we have a house. That's why we're here. That, that sense of hospitality has at times also been very frustrating to me. <laughs> because there, there have been times when we have shown up for a family holiday meal only to have some other, somebody else there that we may or may not have known. Like, excuse me, Mom, aren't these supposed to be small, intimate gatherings of people that we, we know? And, and sometimes the response went something like this, what are we supposed to do? So-and-so just lost somebody. So-and-so is new, otherwise would be alone. Mom and Dad would be the ones who would say, what are we supposed to do? And I knew what the answer was, I'd, I'd watched him I'd watch them lead a church. I, when, where I grew up in Richardson, um, you, you should know this, a whole lot of my posture and my understanding of what it means to be a church came from somewhere. It came from watching the church that I grew up in, watching that church always risk association. They all, always, always. It, in fact, so often that you got the impression by watching the way that, that Richardson functioned way back when, you got the impression that the risking association and, and the, the hospitality part was, was, was supposed to be part of the normal operation of the church. And that wasn't extra credit. That was just simply us. But from the outside looking in at times, I'm sure it looks like that the gatekeepers aren't doing their jobs. From the outside looking in, perhaps somebody is saying, yeah, but who's protecting the church? When I interviewed to be the pastor back, oh goodness, back in the late 70s, it was a long time ago. I think it was 2007. I will never forget. I can still picture all of the faces around the table, Mike. I can still remember the, the question that I was asked, Dr. Green, like, will you protect the church? And, and let me say, here in, in 2023, yes, I'll sign it. I, John Middendorf, will protect the church. In every way I can, I will. Even and especially it has to do with our tendency to not be hospitable enough. In other words, I'll do the best I can to protect the fidelity of the church to the mission of God. This passage of scripture that, that Stacy read so beautifully just a minute ago uh, you have to understand how it is situated in the Gospel of John. Does everybody know that uh, Scripture didn't originally have verse and chapter numbers? It, it, and sometimes those verse and chapter numbers have created a sense of division that don't help us as we try to read Scripture. And in fact, this would be one of those situations because this discussion about gatekeeping and gates comes immediately after Jesus healed a man who was born blind, and in the process of his trying to tell the story of what happened, he got himself kicked out of the institution. Let me, let me read something to you. This is the end of chapter 9. 
Um, the leadership brings him, this man who had been healed, bore blind, and they said to him, what did he do to you, and how did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I've already told you, and you wouldn't listen. Oh, why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? And that really made them angry, and they said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. Our gates, our gates to the room where everybody gathers, our gates look like those Ten Commandments. That's not in there. That's just what I'm picturing, that their, that their gates took the forms of the Ten Commandments. Everybody see that? that? That would make very effective gates. Two giant stone tablets with all these words written on them. Those were the gates that determined who was in and who was out. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but who is this Jesus character? <laughs> we don't even know where he comes from. And the man answered, well, that is an astonishing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but he does listen to the one who worships and obeys his will. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they really got mad at him at this point this man who was born blind, but who received his sight. But after his testimony, they had the audacity to say to him, you were born entirely in sins, and yet you're trying to teach us. And so they kicked him out. Let's be fair. They thought they were doing the right thing. Right? I believe I have heard you say it, Dr. Green, if you haven't, Feel free to do what I do and just blame it on Dr. Tashin. But I believe I have heard you say the Pharisees get a bad rap because they are likely people who are better than us. Deeply committed, passionate people who lived out their convictions. And friends, we may not always agree with their conclusions, but let's not miss that these were people of deep conviction and passion who were in this moment wrong, but super convinced of their point of view. They kicked this person out, perhaps in an attempt to protect the gathering, perhaps in an attempt to protect God. There are those people out there too who feel like, who's going to protect God if I don't? Jesus heard that they had driven him out. And when Jesus found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Now remember, he has not yet laid healthy eyes on Jesus. So a stranger is asking the man born blind, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, well, who is it? Tell me, point me in the right direction so that I can believe. And Jesus said, well, now you have seen him. And in fact, it's me, the one speaking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped. Now remember, we're getting ready for this discussion about gates and gatekeeping and thieves and bandits and sheep and all of that stuff, but it's all connected to this conversation. And this conversation continues in this way. Jesus says, I came into this world for judgment so that those who do not see may see and those who do see may become blind. Whoa. And some of the Pharisees near him heard this and they said to him, you cannot be talking about us are you? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would not have sinned. But now that you say, 
we see clearly enough to kick folks out. Your sin remains. This is a particularly frightening passage to me. And, And scary stuff during a season that's still supposed to be resurrection season. Now, there is good news, and, and you'll actually hear it even today. There's really good news today about abundant life, but, but how do we get there? Where is it, and when do we get there? And these are all great questions, and we will not only answer them today, but I hope that we will answer them on a regular basis, that we will get to those answers. But we have to start with this question filled with warning for us who would be the resurrection community. I'm not sure that we can be a resurrection community if we don't answer this question correctly, and that question is, who's in and who's out and who decides? I guess that's three questions. Those questions are, (laughs) who's in, who's out, and who decides? This discussion, Jesus' discussion of the makeup of the flock and the threats to the safety of the sheep follows immediately after the Pharisees had taken matters into their own hands to toss this man out of the group. Why did they do that? We've already said this. The Pharisees were rule followers. They believed in those gates shaped like the tablets. Why were they kicked out? Why was he kicked out? Why did they kick him out? And it had something to do with his unwillingness to say the magic words. His faith no longer conformed to their required standards. They expelled him and many others because they, people like the blind man, were considered threats to the movement. Threats to the movement. So the gates, the gates that look like the tablets, right? Giant renditions of the tablets, the gates. They understood those gates to protect the structural integrity of the people of God, the people with a mission. And they would consider anybody who would not conform to be threats to the mission, threats to the structural integrity of the people of God. I can still say here that I can still grant to these Pharisees the best of intentions. Here's the problem, y'all. Jesus happens to disagree with them. No, nobody else really liked that? I got, I got one vigorous head nod, but nobody else, no? Here's the thing, y'all. This is still the thing, y'all. You can have the best of intentions. And Jesus might still disagree with you. And I'm going to follow Jesus. So, this is going to be a bit personal for the Pharisees. As Jesus now says in verse 1, Very truly I tell you, anyone who does not enter the sheepfold by the gate, but climbs in by another way is a thief and a bandit. 
The one who enters the gate, enters by the gate, is the shepherd of the sheep. Now, now Jesus, it, it may seem like Jesus makes quite a leap, but they wouldn't have felt that way. I mean, the folks listening, probably the prohibitive majority being Jewish, would have understood that shepherding was a metaphor throughout Scripture. Shepherding was a metaphor for leadership and followership. More specifically, shepherding was a metaphor for how God would ache for the good leaders of the people of God to lead. Ezekiel 34 moans out loud that bad leaders for the flock hurt the flock. Good leaders for the flock, good shepherds, help the flock, help move them toward life and future abundance. Bad shepherds result in deathly consequences. Jesus was, in fact, saying, you have just seen an example of bad shepherding. You've just seen an example of bad shepherding. Now, was he only talking about them? No, by the time this was written, Jesus was probably also, the scripture here is probably also talking about other would-be messiahs who would lead the people of God in a violent revolt, only to be put down violently, but I think Jesus, it's inescapable that Jesus is still talking, if not directly to the Pharisees, at least within earshot of the Pharisees. They knew, you can even hear it in their voices, are you talking about, are you talking about us? Here, here's something else. They were keenly aware of this dynamic between a good shepherd and sheep probably had in mind a sheep pen that didn't necessarily exist somewhere out there in the fields and in the pasture, but maybe in town where you do business with your sheep, right? The buying and the selling and all that kind of stuff. There might be just one giant pen. And it might be that in this one giant pen, two or three shepherds kind of commingled all of their sheep. Well, how would they ever get their sheep out to take them to the next town? Well, a good shepherd has spent enough time with his sheep or her sheep, let's say, that those sheep, over a period of time, came to know the voice of the shepherd. So that when the shepherd came out and said, hey, I, I need my crew, that crew would know we belong to that shepherd, and they would follow him out. There was probably somebody there minding the gate to make sure that thieves and bandits and predators didn't get in to destroy the sheep. You could tell the right kind of shepherd because the sheep would let you know, this one is my shepherd. Verse three, the gatekeeper opens the gate for him. The sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes ahead of them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. Now they won't follow a stranger, but they will run from him because they don't know the voice of strangers. And Jesus used this figure of speech with them, and they did not understand what he was saying to them. I really wish I could see the expression on Jesus' face. I think there were times when Jesus tried to use such artful expressions and tried to kind of sneak up on people, and then sometimes it's the disciples, sometimes it's the crowd. In this case, it's probably the crowd and the Pharisees that just weren't getting it. I just want to see it, Jesus taking that deep breath like, oh, okay, straight to the point. I'm the gate for the sheep. Like, maybe you don't get this. Jesus saying, I'm the gate. I'm the gate. 
All who came before me are thieves and bandits, but the sheep did not listen to them. He says, I am the gate. Whoever enters by me will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. This, this is drone footage of a giant herd of sheep who are being funneled through a gate. And on the other side of this opening, this gate opening, there's big pasture, lots of pasture, lots of room. And I'm just going to let it kind of loop here for a second. The Pharisees had gates. Ready? We're, we're about to recover we're about to recover the Easter season ethos here. You ready? The Pharisees had gates shaped like the giant tablets of the Ten Commandments. Jesus comes along and says, those aren't the gates. Those aren't the gates. Here's the deal, said Jesus. I'm the gate. In other words, you ready? You ready? Whoever I say gets in, gets in. The gate is shaped like love. John, uh, just looking at this shape, it's not going to make a very good gate. That depends on how you understand gates. That, that depends on how you need your gates to function. Some people need gates to function in this way. I've got to have my gates to keep certain people out. Jesus, the gate, the, here's how Jesus wants this gate to function, Jesus would say. Being the gate, I'm going to be shaped like I'm shaped to get people in. Man, think, think hard about that one before you amen out loud. Think hard about that one before you nod. You guys, what do we know about Jesus and his willingness to risk association? I mean, for heaven's sake. This is what blows my mind. It's not the tax collectors and the sinners. <laughs> it's not the prostitutes. It's not all those people that blow my mind. You know who Jesus actually still made room for? The Pharisees. Some people need their gates to keep folks out. Jesus seems to insist that we understand him as the gate, but I think it's because Jesus wants people in. And you know where else I find good evidence for that? My favorite book of the Bible, which is, anybody want to tell me, remind me? That's exactly right. I love the book of Revelation. And the last two chapters are so great. Yes, it's art. Yes, it's imagery. But I think we learn a lot from the art and the imagery in Revelation chapters 21 and 22. There is this moment in chapter 21. Watch this, you guys. There is this long discussion about all of these different ornate gates, these big, beautiful gates. Gates all around the city, the new Jerusalem, the city of peace. Gates all around. And they're never shut. In Revelation 21, says this, now to be fair, says, the gates by day are never shut. Aha! 
you say, John. They're never shut by day. Huh? The next line in Scripture is, and there is no night. Have you ever heard me or my predecessors say something like this? We are meant to be an outbreak of resurrection reality. We are meant to be the group of people who will put some skin and flesh on the victory of the resurrection, which pretty simply says love wins. We are meant to be a first outbreak of what we read about in Revelation 21 and 22. Our gates, that being the case, this is gonna upset somebody in the room, and I'm sorry. Again, please direct all your anger and your emails to that guy over there, Gerard Tasha, right? <laughs> our gates, as a resurrection community, cannot look like the Ten Commandments. Our gates gotta look like that. In other words, it's a little bit, it's very similar to verses that we'll read a little bit later in this gospel. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Now, some of us who need our gates to keep people out read that verse in an exclusive sort of way. This means that only the right people get in, and they have to use the magic language to get in. But I would submit to you that that verse means something almost entirely opposite of that. That is Jesus saying, I am the way that you will be bridged to God. I mean, it's like we said about this little room in the back of the temple, the Holy of Holies, where there was access between God and God's people. God would have access to God's people through that little room and that little cube back there in the Holies of Holies. And then Jesus had the audacity to come along and say, well, now I am the temple. Now I am the access between God and God's people. Now I, Jesus is saying, there am the gate. Read a book not too long ago, author, up and coming author, I really like him, I think uh, you'll like it too. His name is Jess Middendorf. <laughs> and in his book entitled I Am, by the way, <laughs> Lisa took our junior leaders through this book uh, and then had him come in and speak with them, and he was, he was very gratified by that. He enjoyed that. Here, here's a quote I want you to catch. The primary issue here is not how leadership is selected or how leadership should be exercised so much as the clear and unequivocal basis of entrance into the kingdom for every person. There is one way and only one by which access is granted into the kingdom. Jesus makes that abundantly clear when he says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. Whoa. Well, now we've got to talk about what it means to be saved. Now, John, do you mean it the way that the old fire and brimstone, brimstone preachers meant about being saved and salvaged from an ugly eternity? Yes, and. I, I do believe in separation from God. I mean, if you choose it and choose it and choose it, I think ultimately God honors that choice. 
I don't think we're just saved from something. I think if we were to read Scripture honestly, holistically, we find that we're not simply saved from something. We are saved for something. And we are saved to something. In Acts, this language is going to be used. And the Lord added to their number 3,000. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And we kind of know what it means in that context. They were being added, added to the movement. It's hard to add people to the movement when your gates look like the Ten Commandments. Because who ultimately is going to qualify by their good behavior? It's not just the Ten Commandments. There's 600 and some odd of those things. This is the gate. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that you could be saved to and for something. That you could have life and have it abundantly. Abundantly. Is that eternal life? It can be. But I think it's also a a boundless sort of life (laughs) that can be experienced in the here and now. Does everybody know that the quality of life you live in gratitude for an unreasonable, relentless grace, the gratitude that you live out, that quality of life is of a much higher quality than the life you live trying to finally accomplish all of the rules. This is where I'm going to get myself in trouble. The last Wednesday night of every month, uh, we have a small dinner back in the Samaritans class, and it is meant to be a place where we can host uh, either people who have been in the military and who are considering self-harm, or people who find themselves adjacent to that person. Perhaps You're also a veteran, but you're not considering self-harm, but the person next to you might be. We're we're trying to get those people in a room and trying to arm and equip them with the resources necessary to help somebody navigate around attempted suicide. I'm against suicide. Anybody else? Now, I, I don't have a whole lot in common with the other folks that we're partnering with to make this a reality, except that we are all doggedly determined to reduce the suicide rate amongst veterans. You okay with that? Can I, can I tell you, I'm, I'm against all suicide. It's only happened a handful of times since I've been here as youth pastor or as your senior pastor. I have only a few times uh, had to deal with the suicide of a younger person. 
And this is just anecdotal evidence. I don't, I don't have any science. I can't cite anything here. But it's happened a handful of times, four or five times. In each one of those times, someone who anticipated that the, what they the thought would be reliable sources of hope and consolation and comfort, family and or church family, they anticipated being able to find some help and comfort, solace. And in each one of those times, a person already broken was broken further when the sources, they hoped, they hoped that these sources for hope and comfort and consolation became the opposite. Now I can cite you some studies that would demonstrate that when the people of God use scripture like a weapon, when the people of God take a posture that is something other than the wide open arms of Christ, I think I can cite you some studies that would say that that is, that kind of posture can leave a, a, a mark and a scar I'm against us, I've already said I'm against suicide. I'm against us taking postures and positions as believers that would contribute to someone's percentage chance that he or she would do some self-harm. Growing up, hearing dad preach week in and week out, I don't know how many times I heard this little poem by a poet by the name of Edwin Markham, whose poetry was published in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and, and wrote things that people liked. FDR actually kept this little poem near him all the time and, and actually had it, uh, made sure that it would be a part of his library. Edwin Markham. I just want you to think about the posture that's contained in this little poem. It may be hard to read. This was what it looked like when he first wrote it down. But here's what it says. He drew a circle that left me out, heretic, rebel, a thing to flout. But love and I had the wit to win. We drew a circle that took him in. Oh, I want that to be our song. And I want that to be our song because I suspect that, that Jesus might have been willing to sing a song like that. Anybody else? Listen to this. He drew a circle that left me out, my enemy did, heretic, rebel, a thing to flout. But love and I had the wit to win. We drew a circle that took him in. John, who are we taking in? Yes. Pretty dangerous. Oh, tell me about it. But Jesus is the gate. What does it mean when Jesus says quite clearly, now he'll get to I am the good shepherd, but it's not here. It's the next verse, but it's not here. Twice in four verses, Jesus says as clearly as he can, grabbing us by the shoulders 
looking us dead in the eye and saying, hey, I know there's lots of competition for the role of gate and gatekeeper out there, but Jesus says, I'm the gate. No more applications needed. I'm the gate. And I'll invite anybody I want to invite, says Jesus. And that invitation includes us. You all are invited each and every week. Even the ragamuffins among us <laughs> are invited each and every week because Jesus is the gate. If you are helping us today, would you please come? Heavenly Father, bless these elements. Bless these elements. It's a simple piece of bread and simple sip from a cup, but in your hands it, it becomes something more. It becomes the tangible expression of your sense of hospitality. God, I would pray that somehow in the course of eating and drinking today that you would shape us to be people who would understand the ramifications of this phrase, Jesus is the gate. My prayer, God, is that as we take bread and cup that we would somehow, that we would somehow find the strength, find the strength to participate. Help us be a part of the right kind of gate, Lord. Help us to be people who are able to put some skin and flesh on the victory of love. In a moment, I'm gonna ask you to stand to your feet, to exit your pews to the left, and to come forward with your hands cupped to receive this gift of grace, this gift of grace. As you approach somebody with open hands who's holding a plate of bread, that person will say to you, this is the body of Christ broken for you. How more hospitable could this Jesus be? This is the body of Christ broken for you. Take that piece of bread, don't eat it just yet, but dip it into the cup. When you dip it into the cup, that person will say, and this is the blood of Christ shed for you. Friends, how more hospitable could this Jesus be? Broken body and shed blood. And then take and eat. And then, if you would, please find a place to pray. Now you have options there. You can circle right back around and go back to your seat and pray. I hope you will pray. Or you can come to one of these mourner's benches up here we don't know what you're praying about, but that's okay. We'll make sure that you know that you're not praying alone. If you go to one of these side padded altars, then we have ministers who will meet you there and anoint you with oil for healing. Physical, mental, emotional, familial, relational. If you are wounded and need healing, you can find it there at one of those altars. You may wanna make a special trip down here to this little bowl of water and as you dip your fingers in the water, the hope is that you'll be reminded of the moment that you were included in the most official of ways, the moment of your baptism. Now, you'll not be surprised by this, and we say it every week, but especially after this kind of a sermon and this passage, all are invited, <laughs> but none are compelled. If you'd like to sit this out, that's your prerogative.
But all are invited. You don't know what I've done, even this morning, to my children who wouldn't get ready, so they probably deserved it. If you recognize your need for grace, as I do in my own life, then you are welcome at this table, and there is grace to be had here. But hear this again. All are invited. None are compelled. Because Jesus is the gate. So on the night that he was betrayed, that our Savior took bread, blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, this is my body broken for you, and every time you eat of it, including today, remember me. The same way he took the cup and he held it before them and said, and this is my blood, the blood of a new covenant, and every time you drink of it, including today, remember me. So now all around the sanctuary, if you would, stand to your feet, exit your pews to your left, and come forward with your hands cupped to receive these gifts of God, meant to nourish and equip the people of God.